This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. We find out how one family escaped Afghanistan to come to Canada. We'll meet the president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association, whose journey to get there was not easy. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Overweight and obese Americans should start getting screened for diabetes at the age of 35 rather than 40. The updated national guidelines this week from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force stem from rising rates of both obesity and type 2 diabetes and research showing health benefits of prevention and early treatment. The task force says evidence shows diet and physical activity can prevent or delay diabetes in those at risk. Toronto has been ranked the second safest city in the world this year. Despite last year's spike in gun violence, stunt driving and a lockdown, Toronto was ranked high behind only Copenhagen. The new list by The Economist takes into account everything from digital, infrastructure, personal security to environmental security. Sixty cities were assessed, rounding out the top five, Singapore, Sydney and Tokyo. Toronto came in sixth just two years ago. I'm thinking and wanting to hug those three beautiful children we we found in Italy almost 77 years ago. Martin Adler got that wish more than seven decades ago when Martin was just a young soldier himself. The now 97-year-old World War II vet, credited with saving three young Italian children in 1944, finally met the three siblings who are now octogenarians. This week, they all met up for the first time since that fateful day. It was a happy ending to a story that could easily have been a tragedy. When Adler first saw the children, he had his gun trained on a wicker basket where they were hiding. He thought it might contain a German soldier, but the children's mother ran in front of his gun. Ginsburg, who performed with a heavy metal band as a nonagenarian, has died of heart failure at her care home in Zurich. She was 99. She fled the Holocaust, helped American spies in Switzerland during World War II, and wrote songs in Hollywood. Her rich life spanned three continents and 11 decades. She wrote songs and poetry, worked as a journalist, and refused to fade into the background as she aged. In a 2017 music video for the rock band, Ginsburg stands in front of a screen showing filmed images of refugees. She sings about her grandmother and four young cousins, all of whom were killed in German camps. When did you develop a passion for fashion? I guess I was born with it. 
Style icon Iris Apfel, who turns 100 today, is known for her signature thick black glasses, bold colors, and oversized jewelry. The self described geriatric starlet is finding new ways to express herself and hopes others will do the same. Asked why she still works so feverishly, Iris says simply she wants to stay alive. The centenarian started her career as an interior designer and, as a lifelong style junkie, acquired clothes and costume jewelry gathered from her travels around the world. She has 1.6 million Instagram followers and even has a Barbie named after her, making her the oldest person to have one of the Mattel dolls made in her image. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canada has ended its airlift mission from Afghanistan, but Esan Sadat, his wife, and four children are among the lucky ones who got out in time. Their escape to Canada had to be kept secret even from immediate family members because the mission was just too dangerous. The 33 year old researcher on women's rights put him at risk, but just days after applying to come to Canada, the family of six boarded a plane just seven days before the country fell to the Taliban. They're starting their new lives in Kitchener. We are okay here and we are fine, and my wife and my children are they're fine. I have contact with my family members. I talked with them, they're okay. Can you tell us how you were able to leave just seven days before Afghanistan fell to the Taliban? Yeah,、uh, there was a news about the、uh, special immigration measure for Afghans that Canada wants to help the people that they were for Canadians. And we worked for Canadians with a number of projects, and we had meetings and presentations for Canadians at the, NATO embassy, at the NATO and at the Canadian embassy. Based on that, we just,、uh, I just sent them an email and explained them,、uh, and they sent us forms. Then they did our biometric, and after the biometric,、uh, they sent us the flight schedule, and we,、uh, the, the flight was booked. And we traveled to Canada. But how, how dangerous was that to, to leave?、Uh, when I remember the time that I traveled to、uh, many provinces uh, during uh, June and July,、uh, early July, I found it very dangerous. Taliban s are taking control of a number of districts. And it was a sign that、uh, something is going wrong in Afghanistan and Taliban s are going to take control of the country. Then I found it a little bit difficult for everyone that they sh- the, the, everyone should start thinking about how they can take themselves out of Afghanistan and how they can save their family members, especially for those people that they work for international troops, for international communities. Uh, they have to think about that. But, but you were told that your, your trip here with your family had to be kept secret even from your own siblings. Yes, that's true.、Uh, when I received the forms and when I received the emails, in every email they were saying these are confidential、uh, information and do not share it、uh, with your. Family members, and even do not share it in your social media like Facebook, WhatsApp,、uh, Facebook and Twitter, and、mm-hmm. Instagram. The time that I saw these emails, I didn't share it with anyone. 
even with my uh, older and younger brothers and my sisters, uh, because of confidentiality and because of our own security, and that was important uh, to not share it. I understood the words that were mentioned in the emails that if we share it with anyone, that it might be a security problem for us. You tweeted out that a friend reached out to you recently and said that you never spoke to the media when you were in Afghanistan, so why now? So my question to you is, why now? <laughs> I just posted on my Twitter that question. If you talked against the government, if you talked against uh, the the services that government provide, or if you talked about uh, sensitive uh, topics, then you will be asked, and you will, and they will. Uh, sometimes they will arrest you. Sometimes they will put you in jail. That's why we didn't have a lot of freedom of speech there. But when I came to Canada, I saw many uh, organizations. People have a freedom of speech. And even uh, migrant or refugees have freedom of speech here. I found I found it interesting. Uh, I I made a decision to talk with the media, to let them know from which situation we took we we uh, which situation we were faced. What were the the problems that we were faced in Afghanistan? Do you think in your lifetime you will return to your homeland to a safe country? It's not possible in, in, in a year. Even, uh, I'm thinking it, if Taliban took the control for years, like five, ten years, I'm not possible to return back to Afghanistan. It's not possible. On a happier note, how are you enjoying your first month in your new country? <laughs> uh, honestly, we had a walk to to a park yesterday and the day before, people are very different. They are helping. Uh, they are supporting. They are. Even I am thinking that that they become my friends, especially in Kitchener. When people are looking at us, when people are meeting us, even in a hotel or outside or in the park. We saw children, we saw people are cycling, we saw people are with their children. Uh, they are very nice, they are very kind, and they can feel it, what we, what situation we faced in Afghanistan. And I love it. I, mm -hmm. Also my wife and my children, they are very happy and they loved it. They love the country, and they say, uh, we are talking, and they are saying that, see, they respect humans, and they know what a human means. Everyone is going to their jobs. Everyone is busy with their, with their lives. But at the same time, they are trying to help people that they are newcomers. That's interesting for me. Thank you so much for this, and welcome to Canada. Thanks, everyone, for helping us. Thank you very much. That was Asan Sadat, who was able to flee to Canada just days before the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the inspirational story of the first-ever Indigenous president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, 
Offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. Once told he would never graduate high school, Dr. Alika Lafontaine is set to become the first ever Indigenous president of the Canadian Medical Association next year. He struggled in school, but he credits his success to mentors along the way, including his parents and siblings. After witnessing systemic racism in Canadian health, the Grand Prairie Alberta anesthesiologist created an app where patients can anonymously report racism. Dr. Alika Lafontaine, congratulations, first of all, on becoming the first Indigenous president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association. What are the most pressing issues that you will tackle during your term that I understand starts next August? Yeah, uh, you know, moving into the president-elect position is the opportunity to influence, you know, advocacy and policy at the Canadian Medical Association over the next three years. Like you said, I move into the president's position in 2022, but still have the opportunity to you know, speak in behalf of the association, you know, under the leadership of Catherine Smart, who's our current president. I, I think moving into this position as an Indigenous person, but then also in the midst of an election, gives an opportunity to really unpack some of the issues that someone like myself would be able to bring that knowledge and, and influence into, you know, the public sphere. I, I know for myself, I, I'm really connected with issues like physician burnout as a rural physician, seeing the effects that you know, the pandemic has had on physicians as strained healthcare systems before and during have become close to reaching their capacity and potentially breaking point. And just seeing things change in a way that creates better environments for both patients who are racialized and experience other sort of disempowerment can receive better care. Well, let's talk about that. You have witnessed systemic racism in healthcare in Canada. And in fact, you retell a story about your own brother. Can you explain what happened to him? Yeah, so this this happened years ago, and I had been in the midst of a lot of advocacy, so I had heard these stories from patients across the country, but to have it happen to a family member, you know, in real time as, a, as I was going through these other projects was, you know, really, really insightful and meaningful for me. Um, he went into the emergency room with abdominal pain, and he was assessed and diagnosed and gave me a call later on in the evening, and during the call, he questioned whether or not that diagnosis was really what he had. We had a long discussion, and one of the things that came out was that a lot of the things that you'd expect to happen during that medical encounter uh, didn't happen in the way that, you know, uh, I expected with my experience in in providing medical care. And we, we had a long chat, and we determined that he needed a second opinion. And even for someone like him who had experience in the medical system, he was a dentist, he was a software developer, you know, he was very fearful of what would happen as a result of him questioning, you know, the medical authority that he came in contact with. And I think that's a shared experience that a lot of Canadians can understand, where your doctor tells you one thing and you're often hesitant for many different reasons to not kind of push back. You you used that moment, though, for change, didn't you, to create a website. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so as a result of us working through his issue Uh, he ended up getting the care that he needed. And since that time, me and him have been talking about, you know, how can we expand that experience to include other patients and other, you know, physicians who observe these things to help solve these problems for everybody. And so Safe Space Networks was an idea that came out through both of our work. We set up a network in BC. We're expanding out into Ontario currently. And it's, it's been a really exciting time to be able to allow a space for people who experience 
harm or waste within the system to share things without, you know, the same sort of fears that he had when he came into his medical encounter. Let's talk a little bit about the road to your very successful career. It seems to have been far from easy. You were able to overcome or at least manage after being labeled developmentally delayed as a child. How how have you come so far? I know you talk about mentors. Yeah, you know, I, I will say that I've been surrounded by people who have always seen me as more than I was. And I think we all experience disempowerment in some way. You know, these caricatures that we develop, that people project onto us, that limit the types of things that we might be able to accomplish in their eyes. And I came across, you know, high school teachers, persons within university who taught me as professors, persons within, you know, my medical school training, residency, and medical leadership who all propped me up and gave me the opportunity to see myself differently. And I think it's because of that that I've really been able to walk the path that I have. But you say it, it was difficult even in university. There were, there were mentors, uh, professors who, who helped you along the way. I was struggling to kind of feel how I fit in with this group of people that seem to have generations of physicians as part of their, their pedigree. And I walked out of that situation, you know, just thinking to myself that I don't belong here. And it really was the person who was in charge of the Indigenous admissions program who took me aside and introduced me to different people within the medical school that really helped me feel like I did belong there. And I, I have to say, I really have to credit Val, who was in that position at the time and still has that position at the University of Saskatchewan for creating that space for me. Before I let you go, I have to ask you about music and your time in a rock band. Are you still, <laughs> are, are you, you talk about Dr. Burnout, are you still playing gigs? You know, our, our last major performance was uh, in 2008. It was at a major theater. We haven't done a major gig since. We still get together and sing from time to time. But uh, being a singing doctor is something that I think some of my colleagues can do, but I have yet to balance. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. And congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. That was Dr. Alika Lafontaine, president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association, whose term begins next August. He's the first Indigenous person elected to the role. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Thank you for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.